Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Alfred Hall Monaghan Morris is one of the largest practices in the UK, with projects such as the 2015 Sterling Prize-winning Burntwood School, the Angel Office Building, and Westminster Academy. Now Paul Monaghan, one of the founding partners of AHMM, has been appointed Liverpool City Region's first design champion. Metro Mayor Steve Rotherham said he hopes Monaghan, who hails from Liverpool, will put the issue of good design higher up on the agenda. Within Liverpool, AHMM was the architect for the redevelopment of the Royal Court Theatre, delivered earlier this year, and also designed the Unity Scheme, combining a residential tower and the 20 Chapel Street office block. In this podcast, we talk about design quality, Liverpool, and the issues facing the urban regeneration of British cities. So, Paul, you know, tell me about um, regeneration schemes in the city. We're interested in, in what makes a really great place. And what do you see when you look at some of the major regeneration projects happening right now around the UK? Um, I'd say the best ones are the ones where they... Um, put a focus on the public spaces and the idea of small things like character, things that aren't, aren't very architectural, the idea of character, individuality, and the idea of making spaces that me- are meaningful. And sometimes that's just good streets, and sometimes it can be more um, a formal public realm, but I think it's the best ones that put an emphasis on that, and um, the worst ones is where they pretend they're going to do that and then spend no money on it. And... It, and um, we're almost back to a position that we were in the 60s, which is where very little was spent on the public realm. So to me, those are the things. I'd, I'd also say the idea of how one relates to context, because quite often what our firm is trying to do is put quite dense and bigger buildings, because of the crisis we have in housing, trying to put more housing in um, existing locations, in, the, in, say, Zone 2 in London, Zone 3 in London and how you mitigate between the sort of smaller, say, two, three-storey terraces to, to bigger blocks and how you, how, you, how you make a city that's meaningful to people and doesn't alienate people is, is a real challenge, I have to say. There's a sense that um, people want to be really involved, but there's also kind of a fear of their involvement because a lot of times they react quite strongly to, to that, to development in their neighbourhood or on their block. How do you think... How do you think we bring the communities along? I mean, you're, you're on a, a few commissions now that are yeah. looking at kind of a way forward for, for developing. Yeah, certainly. And, and I'd say, if I look at Elephant and Castle, which we've been involved with for um, with Landlease for maybe five years now, we're building quite a... Um, I think it's three towers there and about 2,000 apartments and shops and landscape. And Lenley spent... I think we're quite exemplary. They spent years with a shop front that was open to people with regular events all the way through the press, still doing it now. And, of course, at first there were an awful lot of people who didn't want the scheme because it was, it's quite a big scheme. But as they started to talk through people, the idea of the parks and where people get involved with the project, um, I think over now, when you see the people who hated it at first are now on board with the project, it's quite interesting. And then even other people who don't really know much about it and don't quite enjoy some of the things... Uh, what it represents. I think if you go and see the first phases of the McQueen and Lavington sort of um, mansion block scheme and the DRMM Sterling Prize shortlisted housing and 
uh, Joe Morris's en energy centre, and then the new park in the middle. And you try and remember what it was like with that, you know, what, 400 metre concrete slab block. And it's hard to deny this is not making this a real better place. And all of the success of it, I think, is around the new parks, the new streets, their big idea of keeping, I think it's 10,000 trees on site. And that's, they're all kept, and that's a key part of it. So I suppose, um, uh, to me, it's an ongoing thing to involve communities. It's not a sort of let's get it out of the way and do it quickly. Um, but it's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. I think it's not very difficult to try and find the right mechanism. And one of the things I think we often feel is that smaller groups works well. It, I think sometimes people want to have much larger groups. And it, as you know, quite a lot of people are intimidated to say what they think in those groups. So we much prefer to break them down and and maybe I don't even get, you know, it's more the junior architects and um, they get to know the people in the area and talk about things and that's true of our clients too. So I think that's the techniques we've found. But then you do need to tell them what that has led to. You know, what, what, what is it that, you know, is it a community centre? Is it something to do with the playground? What, what is it? Is it something to do with lowering one of the buildings that, that you have done so that they feel like it's meaningful? And I think that's the hardest bit. And, of course, commercial world is, is sensitive about some of those things sometimes. Do you think there's a hesitancy to involve them in those difficult conversations about, you know, land value or the trade-offs that need to happen and, and be realistic about what benefits they're going to get? I, I always, whether it be in planning or anything else, try and move clients away from talking about viability and it has to be this because of viability. Because, number one, every planner in the country has heard that every day of the week for every meeting. So it's a, it's a cliché. And two, it doesn't really talk about anything qualitative. It's just about money. And I think it plays into the hands of people who then think it's all about greed and money. So I'm much more about the quality of spaces. And that, um, and it's almost... It's almost um, doesn't need to be said that a, a development needs to make some money. And um, therefore... Uh, and modern developments cost more than old developments and we need to get more people in cities, so we need to get more people housed. That means it has to be bigger if we want it in the, in the middle of certain parts. So I, I, I rarely avoid the money thing because I think it gets manipulated too much. And the way as an architect, I prefer to distance myself away from it publicly, not with our clients because that's key to how we solve problems. But I think it's, 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 uh, that's my key view. Say, for example, there's a number of schemes we've got at the moment. Where, for example, um, one of them's near Peckham, where we had a very... Um, we've got a very tall building in the middle of it, which is very sensitive to people. And we've been wrestling with that scheme, and what we've tried to do now is compress everything and squeeze all the blocks, the gaps between them, make them fatter, and lower, so, and we've ended up getting rid of the tower in this, so that all the buildings are about seven storeys, one bit's ten storeys, before it was 28 storeys. And so that really came from going to see the public and looking them in the eye and going, you know, I, I don't think I can put this in for plan, I don't think I can pursue this, I think I've got to, I've got to make something that feels more embedded in their community. So, so, that, so to me it makes a difference, and to me... It's, that's not about money, because we're making the same money by squashing it all. Um, and someone else could still argue, why do you need so many? But that's just the nature of things, so, yeah. 
Tell me about your new role in Liverpool. Yeah, so I'm, I, I, Steve Rotherham, the, the Metro has made me the Liverpool design champion, all this. Um, and um, I think this came about through the RBA in, in Liverpool and Northwest, who uh, for a while wanted to try and um, promote good design in Liverpool city centre. So I met with Steve last summer, it was talked about, we seem to go on quite well. He's, He's a proper scouser, so he's still got his scouse accent. Um, and obviously, you're, not, you're an improper scouser. Well, I've lost my accent because I've been here longer than I was there. So um, I lost mine when I was about 20. But but um, but as you know, we've often done projects in Liverpool. I did the Tower Unity on the waterfront. We've done the Royal Court Theatre. Now we're doing the, the Old Hay Hospital. And I've taught at the School of Architecture. So it is something that's special to me. So um, And like a lot of cities... At the moment, some good things going on, but not much. A lot of quite poor quality developments. Um, lots of cheap pools of residences going around the edges that don't, to me, I think in 10 years' time will be a bit of an issue. Um, and then there's some major redevelopment sites that are quite exciting. There's like um, Liverpool Waters, which Peel Holdings are going to do. And then there's the new, the old Garden Festival site, which was, <clears throat> you know, from 1981 when the Toxus riots occurred and the government, Margaret Thatcher's government, Michael Heseltine, set up this Garden Festival and built this ideal housing. So I'm very keen that is becomes, and that's a council-led scheme. There's a ferry terminal coming, so all the cruises can come from New York, you know, almost back to what it was like 100 years ago. Um, <clears throat> so we're looking at that. And I think I've got, I suppose I've got a, um, there's a few things we're trying to do. So, number one, we've got design review. So Steve's given, I think it's £100,000 to to the design review panel, Place Matters at North, which means any project can be reviewed for design, which um, is a great thing, because I'm a great believer in design review. I'm talking about public spaces too, so very much what you've been talking about. Um, Liverpool's quite spoiled for public spaces, the city centre. So, you know, you've, you've been there, you've seen... There's, there's, there's all of the historic city and um, Dale Street, etc., with beautiful old streets and lovely um, Victorian Edwardian buildings. And then Liverpool did get this gift, which was Liverpool One, which you know must be, um, you know, one of the, the the most pioneering pieces of regeneration in any city in the UK. You know, it's half of Liverpool rebuilt to incredibly high quality, lots of good architects with amazing public realm. So the city centre's good, and I think that's why it's successful. Um, you go outside Liverpool to little towns outside it, it's not so successful, a lot of tired places, lack of investment. So what we're doing with the RBA is running a little competition, which at the moment is called um, Forgotten Spaces, where we're inviting anyone to put forward spaces within certain areas um, with a solution for how we reboot these spaces or, or, or uh, regenerate those bits, and that's so, so. That's a key thing. Looking at, do we keep going? Should I keep going? Yeah. <laughs> We're looking at trying to promote like young, younger firms. And I've noticed that like two of our guys who are called Mutt Architects, for some reason, um, Graham and Alex, being with me for eight years, I think, are going to move back to Liverpool, which I thought was the first time I've seen that, because it's a cool cultural scene. You know, it always has been, you know, from the Beatles to now, you know, to everything I went through with Eric's and everything in the 
80s and then it's still very, you know, and then Cream and the dance clubs. But also the art scene's great um, and there's obviously the football and the sport is a big part of Liverpool. And you can buy a house for a lot less money and live in nice areas and there's a great scene. So I think, I think that's starting to happen. So I'm quite keen to pr- try and promote some of the smaller firms in Liverpool. There's good, you know, there's people like Shag KM who people know. There's um, a firm called Magma and there's... Um, more established firms like Paul Faulkner, Faulkner Chester Hall, who are who are slightly more established firm. So I think there's, um, uh, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of in, in ingenuity, but we we don't quite see them getting the right commissions. So I think some of the developers are going to. It, it upsets me not seeing them going to some of these younger architects for some of these projects because I think they get so much more out of it. Liverpool also has really famous community-led projects like Granby with the um, Granby Four Streets and and the Welsh Streets as well are quite special. So I think that community, there's yeah. a sense that there's the a potential there to have yeah. ground up development as well. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I see that. I, th- I think they're more one-offs, to be honest with you. But they're good. They they're certainly good models for us. Um, but I definitely think they're more more one-off, and they're exceptional as they are. Um, but the, the other funny thing about Liverpool is that really, you know, you go to the middle of the centre and there's like, there's literally semi-detached houses one block away from the middle. And, and so the city, unlike, say, Manchester and, say, I don't know, say, Shoreditch and Leeds, which uh, people started living back in the city, it's, it, it did happen for a bit, but Liverpool's a much wider city. So it hasn't quite... The, the living was, like, suburban... And then that's what they built in the city centre as well. So the idea of loft living is, is there a bit or, you know, more urban living? But still hasn't had that huge boom yet, which I think will help make the city more of a seven days a week um, venue. But it's still, it's very much a student city and an entertainment city. So things like the, the Liverpool Echo Arena, which is like our O2 arena, very successful for big events, big, um, you know, the Sterling Prize was there, wasn't it? The year I lost it. Um, and, um, you know, there's that, that works very well. So a lot of the hotels get filled up. Obviously, the football is huge at the moment, and obviously there's two, three teams. Um, and, the, and the sort of going for a weekend, it's, it really is a city that's made very well now for going for long weekends, and people do well, which is... So it's built its... A lot of its... New income is based on leisure and arts, really, which is quite interesting. Um, but it needs to build up its business side as well. So, um, yeah. There's obviously been a lot of um, debate around the UNESCO yeah. um, threatening to withdraw its World Heritage yeah, Site. Yeah. Um, how much of your role has come out of that debate around how, how Liverpool goes forward and how it doesn't kind of undo its... its distinctiveness. Yeah, you see, that that's part of... That, that's been with the council. So I'm part of the city region mayor, and there's obviously the city mayor, Joe Anderson. So that's more in the planning authority that sit with them. I, I've i never asked Steve whether that was any, any reason why he thought it was a good idea, to be honest with you. Um, but I think, in a way, it's a symptom of the way perhaps I feel sometimes development's been treated in Liverpool, where... Uh, actually getting development to happen is more important than the quality of it. And I, I suppose what I'd be saying is that well-designed development doesn't cost any more than badly designed development, so why, why, 
why not insist on better? And it's, it's not, people always throw that it's more money, but we all know that it's about picking the right design teams, they're having the right concepts. Um, in my experience over the years, with all of the design reviews I've done with Cave and things, quite often the weaker schemes are also incredibly inefficient financially too. So, uh, so I think there's something about trying to improve the everyday architecture of Liverpool. Um, I think the sort of arts buildings they've always done in a reasonable way. Um, so the theatre, sorry, the theatres, you know, look, we won the Sterling Prize of one, our, our other one, the Royal Courts, won lots of prizes and, and looks, you know, rebooted now. There's one other, the Playhouse, that's a bit sad at the moment, it sort of need, desperately needs some funding. But it's still a really outstanding, unusual building. And the, theater, and the um, museum districts going through refurbished. Mari Johnson's there now. Do you know Mari from Cabe? She used to be, um, so she's now in charge of the museums. So. so all of those sides, you know, the Museum of Liverpool on the front, the funny building that uh, was it 3X Nielsen did, you know, had its issues, but it's very popular. Tate Modern, Tate Liverpool's there. So those things are good. It's more like housing halls of residences what the university builds, and then sort of office buildings. And it's incredibly difficult, because you're building office buildings in Liverpool. The rent, you know, if I say here our rent is, so where are we, Clerkenwell? So 60-ish quid square foot. In Liverpool, I think the highest you would get anywhere in Liverpool would be about 20 to, 20 to 30 pounds a square foot but most of it more than the 20, which means the, the equation of building it and renting it doesn't work. So quality goes. Um, so it's how, do we, how do we be more inventive in those things? I'd be very interested in trying to get involved with those things. But uh, So it's the sort of commercial buildings, that I think. And we are talking about trying to, and it's very early stages, set up a housing design guide, because I... I was telling Steve, I think it's been very successful, the London Housing Design Guide. And while now a lot of people are critical that it's led to this sort of, what is it, London vernacular, that where everything looks quite similar. Um, if you go back 15 years and look what was quite similar then, it was terrible. You know, all built out of render, cheap materials, falling apart. Um, and at least these brick buildings are more concentrating on proportion and longevity. So I think it's all right. And let's face it, most of London was built like that, Georgian houses and Regency. So I said I think it could be something we could do in Liverpool, some sort of design guide, because there isn't really one at the moment. And that might help. I mean, he, you know, his issues are housing, like London's. So he's very keen on trying to have... Um, yeah, trying to improve on that. And I think very much the things you're talking about, which is the idea of how do you make places that people want to live in, that, that feel like communities. Um, you talked about character. What's, yeah. What's the character of Liverpool? What's the character of Liverpool? Well, it's... it's <laughs> well, there's, there's so many different parts to it, even the middle parts, so... And so many bits of it have sort of slightly faded it, so that by the Anglican Cathedral, there's all of the white regency. You know, that when I was young, we're a terrible state, and um, now... I've, start to be more appropriated. There's the districts that like um, um, Otterspool and Egbeth that are big houses and have sort of grand gardens and rows of semi-touch houses which are, are sort of more suburban. 
And then I always think the city centre itself is quite exciting, but even now there's, there's the city, which has a certain tie, there's the sort of student quarter by Concert Square, and then there's the sort of bit next to the station as well, is, just, is, is in a way not as successful at the moment. Um, I mean, I have to say that Urban Splash were the people who really, I think, started doing bits and pieces in the city early on when they first began with things like Concert Square, taking the old buildings, not knocking down all of the old buildings, keeping the old buildings, designing new buildings that went with them, complementary, and very much almost all of that area around Duke Street was uh, created through one square in the middle, Concert Square, with, with one new building and all the old buildings around it that for years have been derelict. And of course that was generated by the club scene, Cream, you know, how successful that was and the income from bars and restaurants and how that became a place people wanted to come to. So do you think that should be the starting point? You look at the individual character of each of these neighbourhoods and, and you, do you start with what you need to keep? Well, I always think keeping something is good because you can't rebuild. Normally, it's, normally you can't rebuild what was there in the past because it's too expensive just by the nature of historic architecture. And I think people... You know, so even if it's, it needs to be meaningful, it can't just be sort of propped up. But I feel that, that, if you like that prop of history, having something to play against, the new with the old, always, it's an old trick, but always works well. Um, whether or not with, the, with this competition, because these are in, you know, they're in all the different districts, from the Wirral to, you know, um, almost, in, almost into Runcorn, um, but St Helens way and Prescott. Um, how the different characters of those neighbourhoods come across would be would be really interesting. Some of them have got fantastic. I mean, Birkenhead um, Town Hall is an unbelievable building, and um, but um, so there, there are there are places like that that still have this this grand architecture for when you know, Liverpool was in its heyday and you know, hundred years ago. Um, yeah, so yeah, hopefully. Yeah. You've got um, there are quite high levels of deprivation in, in Liverpool. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, in other places you've described how with the affordability crisis really in London, you might have young people moving up there, you might have some movement to help revive the city, um, but you also have, you know, quite, quite large neighborhoods um, with very real big problems. Yeah. Um, where, where do you start? Where, can design help to to address some of this inequality? or And what can we learn as places like Liverpool kind of try to get investment and, and evolve from, yeah. from the affordability crisis elsewhere? Well, I think obviously there are various city funds that Liverpool can get hold of. What doesn't happen in Liverpool, I don't think, I mean, I might be, is the sorts of big regeneration schemes that councils in London sometimes do with the private sector where there's a partnership. Um, they don't seem to, to do those in the same manner. So those grander schemes often need private money to help them. Now, it, interestingly, in London, they're sort of dying out now because things like the Haringey development vehicle has sort of collapsed. So uh, perhaps another way, and what I've noticed recently, is the idea of you know councils doing their own housing again. And um, I think if you look in London, Hackney and um, Croydon are both doing really exemplary housing themselves. And 
It's funny, I was judging the Hackney Awards this year and I went to see a Project King's Crescent by Karakusevich Carson. I was there. <laughs> and I noticed how the quality of the scheme in all its detail was different to some of the things we've been able to achieve with just private developers, that there was an, an extra um, level of detail and thoughtfulness that, that um, I don't, I'm not sure the private sector always delivers. Um, Plus, it, it's sort of it's clever that probably because it meshes in the '60s block at the back and makes it refreshes it, so it doesn't feel like a fantastic. But again, I'd say a lot of it is really interesting landscape there, really inventive. So, um, and Croydon are doing the same, and some of that's in small sites, very bits and bit, you know, was it brick by brick? So some of them are infill sites. Camden are doing it. I, I, you know, I think it'd be great if Liverpool did it. So I think that seems to me to be one of the things that I think we're going to start seeing happen. That rather than asking developers to build 35% affordable housing, the councils get the money and build it themselves. Yeah, back to where we used to be. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the other commission that you've recently joined, yes. Building Better, Building Beautiful, which has been under some um, controversy uh, yeah. because of some of the comments about a return to a classical architecture. I mean, you're on it and you're not a classical architect. Um, yeah. You're very much in the modernist camp. Yeah. So uh, wh what, is, what is this commission for? Is it worth all of the debate around it? And what are your hopes for it, if you have any? Um, well, I suppose at the moment it's not even out that who is on the, the advisory board, but it probably will be soon. Um, so I suppose I've been approached to be an advisor, which we've been to some meetings. And I think the goals, which is how do we embed new developments into cities and make them be meaningful, make them developments that people feel a part of their city, not people don't feel alienated. Um, and obviously some of that is about style and some of it is about height and massing, some of it is how one interfaces with, with the community. Um, I don't see as an architect any harm in opening discussions about that. And also the idea of beauty is something that um, architects don't really talk about much now. And I think um, there is nothing wrong with the idea that, well, to me, I see the idea that the government might be interested in design again is fantastic because there hasn't been much indication of that for the last eight years. So um, I, I think that could be really, you know, it could be something that um, could be important. Um, so I suppose those are, the things that start to happen. It's very early days, and I think there's trying to trying to work out how uh, all of these things could inform um, better places for people to live in. Um, uh, that's that's the goal of it. And there's you know, very interesting people on the board and very mixed. And um, while I think I, I think it's fair to say there is definite recognition that some older buildings and classic parts of our cities somehow. Um, are things that people really enjoy, and some very modern things are things people don't enjoy. There is, from what I can see, there is no hidden agenda about it being one style. This is about good development and good places and good communities, trying to, trying to help and grow communities. And, and all, all to try and how do we do, how do we build this number of houses the government wants to build and needs to build, but not just make them these new areas that suddenly become something that's completely different within the city, disjointed from the city. And so, yeah, I, I 
quite, I'm very fascinated by being part of it. Do you think the rise in populism and social media is making it more difficult to have a measured conversation about the city? Um, I suppose almost every planning application we do now or every time we're in building design or the architect's journal, um, you, you, you now used to, um, you know, a vitriolic attack on um, social media straight afterwards and, and occasionally there'll be someone who'll be quite pleasant about things but it's quite interesting the way um, uh, that comes through and often the an anonymity of that is, um, I find, hard because I don't think that's right. What I find amazing, but this is, a, you know, if you read the, um, any of the nationals now, they put, they put what people block almost as important as the story, so it becomes part of the story, which is something, I don't think anyone, we didn't, certainly as architects, never imagined that in AJ it's almost as important what people are saying as, uh, as, as it is the story itself. And um, so I suppose, number one, it does allow, yeah, I, I suppose that's something that one gets used to and it makes you slightly cautious about what you release, which I don't think is good. But equally, I think when used well, it can, we've been involved in a lot of consultation where it does allow people, um, it allows people to ask questions in a more subtle way so that you can get, um, I suppose you can get, get underneath the skin of some of the issues that people have. I think that is good. Um, and I think getting back to this thing about, I was saying before about having big meetings, sometimes people would prefer to write and, and uh, go by email rather than be in a big public meeting. So there are, there are other opportunities. It's much more hard to harness. Um, and I'm sure the planning system and everything about it is still, and the development is still trying to work out how it works. But on the whole, I think people are starting to find it very useful now. And um, yeah, because there'll always be people who don't like any new developments whatsoever. And um, you just have to, um, I think what you're always trying to find out is which people might be interested in talking more and um, in a constructive way. Because so. I think people expect to have a voice and a view now, quite yeah. and quite publicly. Yeah, and um, whereas perhaps ten years ago it was more historic, you know, historic England, twentieth um, century society. It was all the, the more statutory or advisory groups that were key. Now it can be, well, it can be very easy for them to join groups together, and you know we've did a, a project in Blossom Street where um, SAVE got behind a campaign which Dan Cruikshank led. And, um, you know, the, 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 it was, a lot of it was fought out on social media. It was, it was something we'd never seen before. And if you add in a TV personality and the number of people that he can then, who, who then are friends of his on websites, it becomes quite a, a large thing. But. I didn't really find, in the end, didn't really find any of the debates. Um, I'm glad it happened, because it happened publicly in the debate, and, and we tried to answer the accusations that were put in front of us and tried to deal with them. And I think, I'd like to think they all felt that the scheme was adjusted related to their comments. Um, I always felt it could have been done in a quieter, less public way, but that, that, that said, it had the required effect. 
So it was, there was a two-way conversation, even with people emailing from America who are fans of Dan on those television programmes, complaining about the vandalism we were doing in Shoreditch, you know, and or Spitalfields. So uh, I think it's a good, you know, I think it worked well on that scheme. Um, so maybe it's about us adjusting, you know, the kind of the way we consult or the way we talk or the way... Yeah, but it's all of us, isn't it? It's everything we do. It's, it's, that, that could be said about social media full stop. None of us quite, and, and emails full stop, none of us quite know how to harness it yet. Um, and I th but I think all of them are useful tools. I <clears throat> wanted to ask around um, planning and whether you think it's, it's working as it, as it should or what could be improved. Yeah. I think there's a, number of, there's a number of things. I think one, on the whole in London, I find the quality of planning authorities exceptional. And um, obviously, they, particularly the more inner city ones where they're used to dealing with hard problems, whether it be heritage issues, height issues, massing, um, objections from certain stakeholders. And I think um, they are exceptional. When, it, when you do get to the bigger schemes, there is, if you think that what clients want is certainty, quite often there is, it takes quite a long time to get some form of certainty about, say, the quantum of what might happen in a development. And I, I do wish that could be sp speeded up a little bit. And sometimes this isn't, sometimes this is the plan of saying, you know what, I want, I don't want a 20-storey tower, I, we're only allowing eight storeys there. And it would just save a year of time. And I think there's not enough of that with them. Sometimes there's, there's anxieties to do that from their side. I think, um, so I'd say number one is that, that would help client. I know that's, uh, because so much is up for negotiation of how much affordable housing, um, that's becoming much clearer. But I think those, all of the, everything that's blurred means it goes on longer. And of course, the longer it goes on means it doesn't get built and we don't get these new houses. Um, I will say the, the, the you know the mayor's coming out with the new London plan, of which there are, there's no question about it. I, I would say none of them are bad things, but all of them will affect viability because all of them put more. If you like a, um, it's very clear about affordable housing. Um, things like bike storage is hugely increased or increased. So there's lots of additional things when the market is already in trouble in terms of viability. So I'd be interested to see how that happens. The only ready way to go is for sites to, to, to go lower. To, but people have already bought a site, it's, 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 it's tricky. So what would happen then if someone's buying a site and the, and the new scheme can't get planning for a viable scheme, nothing happens. So that's, you know, that's potential for that. So I think there's, there's, there's about certainty. I think the ones that use a design review panel, I always quite enjoy because I think it does give an objective view. And um, that's always the spirit I treat them in and enjoy presenting to them and enjoy the advice given. And, it's a bit uh, like going back to school, going to I your I think grade. there is a bit like, <laughs> it is a bit, yeah. And um, 
Um, except when I was at school, I used to defend everything to the, to the nines, whereas now I've grown more mature, and I sometimes say, good point. Um, but I never would when I was 24. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think there's definitely something about that. But I think, I think it's also these are people who are there, you know, they're not paid much money to do design review, that's not the point of it. Um, they're there to, to look after the city, whatever borough they're in, and that's, in a way, it's a more... Um, noble thing they're doing and I, therefore I think it, it reminds you as an architect your duty is both to your client and the city which is in our code and that's when you're doing big schemes you have to remind yourself that a lot um, you don't tend to remind your clients of that too often because it's not very popular with them but I, I, in my mind I'm always thinking about those things so you know if you, if you go back to beauty and everything you might or the idea of well, well good design Detail must be part of that. And by that, I mean the, the way a window sill meets a brick and the depth of a brick, the proportion of a window. So in the office world, the commercial world, every client we've ever worked for is passionate about design, will then do the tender, and then the architects will then build the job with the builder. Why is it in the housing world that that it's an exceptional, it's an exception for clients to do that. The norm is to bin their architects, go to an architect who's a quarter of the price. And how do you then, isn't that something to do with why the quality of the housing they're getting isn't quite as good as it should be? And why on earth it can't be, you know, somehow um, planners can have more say in post-planning matters, so i.e. the way um, conditions are discharged. And if, say, an architect is um, dismissed, that they can have some say in... Um, well, I would say, I, I think it's very hard to say that architect has to build it because that can't always be the case. But it could be that they can have a say in who replaces that architect. Um, if you want to replace them, you need to consult with the council. We did this years ago at Kentish Town Health Centre, where Roy McGregor, who was the doctor, got Camden to put in the planning application that the architects of delivery will be offered or Mono Morris or architects approved by the you know, um, Camden Health Centre. And what So some to, kind of commission to prevent the yeah, dumbing down of some the Some are, yeah, design. and I think that is a really key part. I know with architects it's a real... You know, the, sorry, it's too arrogant to say they use your name to get planning, but... Um, it's true, you know, that, that, that why we're successful is we get good planning permissions for people. But we resent it if someone then tries to, to then run off with the planning permission and get it built cheaply and our name remains in the building but all the details are sort of dumbed down. Uh, so, so I think that's quite a key, you know, I think that's where... I know planners get frustrated by that too. And I think something needs to be done about that. So, yeah. Do you think the skilling up of planning departments will help that, or do you think it's more about them having teeth in...? Well, they have been absolutely cut back, and it's not their fault. You know, most of them are working so hard, and um, I think that's been really problematic the last 10 years, that they, they're, they're, you know, they just don't have the resources. Um, most of them have very good key people, and some of them have more than that. Um, but then you've got things like, you know, Finn Williams is doing public practice, which I think is a really successful thing. It seems to be where it just adds a little boost of design criticism, design focus within the planning authorities or, or other types of expertise. And I think that um, seems to be a very good way ahead and it seems a very efficient way of doing it because all, he's training a cohort of people 
who are then going out there and actually, um, for the local authorities to bargain, they get them up and ready and, and trained. And I think, um, but also they feel part of something and feel, you know, real, you know, for people, you know, we had one lady, Sophie's doing it, uh, you know, feel a real sense of achievement with, with, with those, with that programme. As part of this kind of large-scale urban regeneration schemes, architects have been smeared quite a lot to, as being a part of gentrification. Yeah. Um, and, you know, kind of, um, there's been a number of, it's probably in the public press, but also there's been protests at the RBA. Um, and, and do you see that, um, is that disheartening? Uh, well, I remember going to the Sterling Prize when we won the night we won and we, uh, there were um, people throwing paper planes at us, but it wasn't about our scheme, it was about someone else's. <laughs> we, we, we'd done a school. Um, but um, is it disheartening? It was about, to think. It was about I think, Elephant I think, Castle. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, no, no, it was, it, was, um, it was nearer Tate Modern. Um, but um, what was I going to say? The, um, I, I, I suppose when I look back, we, I suppose the scheme that we've been involved with that um, I suppose is is, a new, is 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 Embassy Gardens next to um, the American Embassy, which was one of his first. So that whole area is, you know, f was nothing ten years ago. Is now popped up everywhere, and I suppose um, not. But I didn't imagine when we were designing it that most of the apartments would be sold abroad. Um, so I think that that period of uh, buying to rent and foreign investors has, has not really helped anyone. I, don't, I can't imagine anyone thinks... I don't know anyone who thinks that it was a positive period. And in a way, I think, I think we're all still... I think the cities have... I think London's been really harmed by that because that's affected house prices. We mustn't forget at the time it saved a lot of the house builders who were on their knees and that, that investment to try and build things was the only way they could keep going. So there was a two-way thing, but it... I don't even think any of them thought the backlash would be that these inflated prices, the, the sort of doubling your money thing that happened 2004, 2005, um, was going to be so ex extreme. Um, so, in terms of gentrification, no, well, everything we do has percentage of affordable housing. So, um, the block we're doing at Elephant, I mean, it's interesting, the one everyone loved, the block, there's three buildings, and the, the building that everyone thinks is the most beautiful building is the social housing. And it's the cheek and jowl to the private and the, the, the shared ownership. So we haven't done a project where we haven't done... We've done, we've done a lovely project with Kevin MacLeod in Oxford, which is pure social housing. And it's... Um, some of them are flats and some of these are uh, a sort of series of terraces. And um, I have to say that seeing the residents going there when they, you know, to brand new houses was, you know... Um, was lovely to see because I think you can see that that's not something that you people get offered very often certainly in London yeah. so much of the emotion is is the, the you know the pictures of Robin Hood Gardens empty and boarded up or the idea that people get a visit and knock on the door and are told they're gonna have to relocate because yeah. the, and I think those are really really difficult um, really difficult things to kind yeah. of reconcile with the with the other Part, which is, you know, the desire to build better pieces of city, more dense, or to, to densify the densification. Yeah, I think that was a you know, despicable period of 
rehousing people outside their neighbours, the, the neighbourhoods they're brought up in. Um, I mean, mustn't forget as well the other, the the whole change of use from office to residential, where we then ended up with a load of very poor quality conversions with very poor space standards. Um, were often used to house people like that, so that these, you know terrible office buildings were crammed full of small flats where there was no, uh, not sufficient building regulation to controls on it and to, to house people who who were, were being moved from other areas. So I think that was a very regrettable planning process as well. But um, yeah, hopefully that's, well, I hope it's better now. Uh, you've got a, a big project at Broadgate and Broadgate was maybe one of the original places. Uh, yeah. or, or thought of as a place in the city with its kind of public space in the middle. Indeed. And um, I mean, it's changed a lot, obviously, with the um, make building moving in. Um, yeah. And you're about to do another piece of that. What, yeah. how, how, I mean, if, do you want to talk a little bit about Yeah, that? yeah. I mean, <coughs> we're doing two buildings there. We're doing number one Finsbury Avenue and we're doing number one and two Broadgate. <coughs> so, number one Finsbury Avenue is a, a listed building designed by Arab Associates or um, and Peter Foggo was the main person on that, and I think Rab Bennett was on it when he was young. Um, when we were at college, that was just being finished, and it was um, it was really interesting because the um, it was in the Architectural Review that building, and I'd never seen a spec office building in the AR before. Arab associates had never, you know, good architects didn't do spec office buildings, so Arabs who were very very well thought of to do a spec office building suddenly opened the door to other good architects. Because you don't really think of that anymore. So the fact Norman Foster and Richard Rogers would do spec office buildings. You know, 20, there, weren't, there, were, there were a set of architects who did city office buildings. And people like Rogers and Foster did something different. But everyone does it now. We went to see Peter Fargo when he was designing Broadgate on a Sunday, no, a Monday evening. He sort of agreed to see us where he was sort of like sketching out the round thing. He said, I don't know what it is, but it's circular. <clears throat> and it's got it's something Stuart wants it, but I don't know what it is yet. But, um, and he was having to design it very, very quickly. Um, so first of all, to design one, to refurbish one Finsbury Avenue and bring it back to its former glory and be you know, very much the bridesmaids in that, it's been fantastic. It's a beautiful building, and that's nearly finished. And it's been very successfully let. And, um, and it's different. It's got different types of tenants. It's got people you wouldn't imagine being in Broadgate. But you're right, the other, the most incredible thing about Broadgate when I was at college, and it seems so obvious now, but a developer giving away a load of land to the public use rather than just building on it. It's almost so obvious you don't even notice it. So it was seminal in that way. You know, based on, um, you know, things like the Rockefeller Centre and the idea that, you know, big business could have these spaces. So I suppose really it's a very important development city, and still you don't see too many developments of that scale. Um, so the second building is a new building that where we're knocking down one of Peter Fogge's buildings. Um, and we just got planning last week for it. We're starting on site. Well, the demolition will be starting later in the year. And that's going to have a lot of shopping in. So it's going to effectively feed from Liverpool Street Station in a concourse that will go through into Finsbury Avenue Square. Um, and we'll have three or four levels of shopping and restaurants. Um, and in a way, it's a <clears throat> because we didn't want to in any way take light away from the circle, 
the building is a cascading building which has a series of terraces that look onto the big circle in the distance. So, and they're all landscapes, so it's a bit like the um, Hanging Gardens of Babylon, I suppose. <clears throat> and then um, Gwyn Richards, who's the chief planner in the city, who you know is very involved with the design of this building. Um, he, he, he suggested to us that you know, he's very happy to consider colour. And um, the city doesn't do colour very often, but because this is more of a public building, it's not, you know, there is a lot of office space, but at the bottom is very public. We've, we've, we've employed colour for the first time for quite a while, actually, in a very, I suppose, a way where each of the elements of the building are articulated with a slightly different shade of, of, of colour. And, and that's something we're developing as well, which makes it quite unusual for the city, makes it stand out. So, yeah, we're, we're really excited. I mean, to, build in, to be honest, I, I, to, if you told me 20 years ago, 30 years ago when we set up that we one day we might do a building in Broadgate, I'd have thought, well, that will do for my life. You know, I'll be very happy if that ever happens, but it won't. So it's such an honour to do a building in such a famous place. And then, of course, you feel a huge amount of pressure because it's, you know, it's quite a seminal... Um, location. And you're knocking down. Yeah, it's not listed. <laughs> not a listed building. I mean, a non-listed building. Yeah, you have to. Does that add to the pressure sometimes if you're taking something away? Yeah, you certainly. I feel that what we've done to One Finsbury Avenue is is made it very dignified again. I really do feel that, and I think it's been done with a lot of love and care. The detailing of it. Um, yeah, one does feel um, a sense of um, that, that what needs to go there needs to be exceptional. <clears throat> I don't think that building was... Uh, sorry, I, was very, I don't think that was an exceptional building. I, it was done, I know it was designed quickly, and it doesn't engage with the ground. All the levels are very different, and it's very... It'd be very difficult to converse that building, because it's sort of, sort of 1980s footprint that, where the cores aren't quite in the right place. I think it's interesting how Broadgate is changing to be much more retail, or the ground floors are a bit more yeah. engaging. And I guess is that you know it used to be very dead at the weekends, or there wasn't. There well, this is the whole idea trying to get it going seven days a week. So in One Finsbury Avenue, you've got an Everyman Cinema. Um, the whole idea is already their research shows that I think for the first time, last I think around September October. For the first time ever, um, Saturday night, the bars and restaurants made more money than the Monday night. So it's starting to go because obviously the weekend is great for Liverpool Street. Everyone goes to Smithfield's Market. What they want is to go the other way. So I think, you know, I think um, the different types of uses we get there should work. Um, and they, of course, put in some meanwhile uses to kind of get that going. Yeah, and in a way, it was quite easy. All we needed to do is make it all clear shop, for, shit, clear fronts and have some bars and restaurants at the ground floor. And what David Hills and Deborah Saunds have done is made these, yeah, pop-ups, which are pretty much going where we will put things. And they've been... In, it's transformed the square. And that square has been redesigned about three times over the last 20 years. It's never worked until they put all these pop-ups there. Just goes to shit. It's quite a simple solution in the end. Um, but there is a different concept of Broadgate that is... So the old concept of Peter Foggo was a very coherent set of buildings and public spaces that related to that. And the new concept, which, you know, is, is a... Not everyone agrees with, but I think it's a, a very valid concept, is every building is individual, 
but the public spaces are the thing that tie them together. You know, so you've got Hopkins doing one building, Orms are doing another, and we're, you know, we're doing the other two, and obviously um, Make have done the, the one on the corner. So each of them now have much more of a character. I think that's something to do with the way the city, the way businesses might want buildings of, of, of character, the way the city wants to stay in the market for, for people, doesn't, you know, it's always competing with Canary Wharf and now competing with Europe. So it wants buildings that stand out. So I think it, it's a valid concept and the public spaces are things that are key, really. And they pretty much remain as, as they were. Well, I just have one last question. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's been a bit of in the paper around um, climate change, which is kind of coming into yeah. a closer view. I mean, even yeah. Liverpool and its, its flood risk, but then yeah. also, you know, this sense of um, uh, that actually, you know, it's kind of the end of the century. And some of these projects and these um, timescales that we're looking at, actually, it becomes a bit more real. And yet it seems like, I don't, it, it's not as talked about in, in perhaps architecture as it was maybe... Ten years ago. Yeah. What, 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 do you, what do you think about that? Is it time to bring it back into the debate? Uh, maybe. I, I, I suspect why it's not talked about is that it's so embedded in regulations and, and the things that we do now that while ten years ago it was an unusual thing to, to try and put that on the agenda, now it's, it's what we all good architects do in all their buildings and their clients want it. In the office world, people want the building to have fantastic sustainable credentials because it's a responsible thing for modern companies to, to inhabit. Um, less so in housing, but housing is controlled by the building regulations and local authorities too. So I think it's just gone from being something that, you know, it might have been 20 years ago, disabled access, we want good disabled access. Um, now we don't talk about that because all buildings have to be fully accessible and um, I think it's become a bit like that. I think the dark green buildings, so i.e. buildings that are going for it and going even you know, may, maybe, maybe we need to continue to try and build more exemplars in that. I mean, we've often with things like White Collar Factory and even the T building, which is refurbishment, achieved very good ratings for those buildings and they've been very popular with, with, with tenants. Um, and I, what, what I don't think anyone's done is found this magic correlation between rent and green credentials, which I suspect will start to come. Uh, I know I work with Google, you know, they're, they're uh, particularly um, keen on, on, on buildings being very, very green in, in the way they're designed. So, and they're just what, you know, they're obviously hundreds of companies following in their wake who will have a similar interest. So. And what about literally greening cities? So many of the public ask for more trees and a more, yeah. more of an urban forest. And there was this promise maybe 20 years ago that all the roofs would be green and everything would be yeah. the hanging gardens of Babylon, um, which hasn't really come to be. A lot of the big regeneration schemes are. This is Gwyn's thing in the city. So he, the greening of the city is one of his new papers he's written that trying to get that and that's our building is hopefully going to be an exemplar for that so there literally are you know the it's not a series of planters that one day we have to fill the plants that go in it are subject to planning so we have to put them in from day one they have to be quite mature we've done one on farrington radio the old guardian building um, we've done 
that building for Viridus and at the back, if you look at it, it's nearly finished now. It's got a series of terraces that relate to rights of light and all of them are, are, are fully planted. And in a way that was trying to counteract the damage done with you know, carbon emissions and taking one tree down. So we tried to say, well, look, actually what we're creating is nine rows of planting. That, um, so I think, I think we will see more of that. I think that's, and, but Gwyn's very determined to get it in the city, which is notoriously a very, you know, any loss of a tree in the city is a problem because there's so few of them. So any improvement is, is what he sees as something great. So yeah, I think we will see that. Um, yeah. Okay. Hope that helps. That helps immensely, yeah. Good. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer. With music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray. For more podcasts, visit us at thedeveloper.live.